Welcome to the Rev Up, Chris Walker. Excited to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me and uh, excited to get into this. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm super excited to have you here because actually your podcast was recommended to me a couple of years ago by a good friend of mine, um, Carl Price, who is the uh, the VP of Pipeline Growth over at Freshworks. He suggested it as part of our own growth plans because there'd be a lot that we could take away and uh, that's actually essentially the reason why we're here today, the reason why I have a podcast. <laughs> so uh, really, really excited to have you here. Your career trajectory, your sort of path has been interesting. When I was doing some background research for this, I noticed that your sort of start in the business world was um, as an electrical engineer with uh, BEA Inc., I believe, working on some interesting projects, including things like adding um, sensors to the product portfolio. Talk to me about how that kind of uh, unfolded. Yeah. So I was employed out of college, straight out of college at a company called Halma Holdings. They had a graduate program, sort of like what the GEs and other companies have to develop future leaders in the company that are well-rounded, typically coming from yep. a STEM background. So I got accepted into that program, which was amazing. Halma owns about 70 technology, B2B technology and engineering companies throughout the world that operate independently as subsidiary in a holdings company roll-up that do somewhere between 10 and 100 million in revenue. And for the first four years of my career, I would rotate around to those companies to do six and 12 month projects to solve real business challenges in a lot of different disciplines. So the first one, I started the program uh, to go and code and be an electrical engineer. And within one month of being at the company, everyone was looking around saying, we need to get this guy in front of our customers. And so I got the opportunity, they recognized sort of my strengths and where I was leading to. And they gave basically gave me a, a product management slash business development opportunity where we had a large OEM come to us and say, we want you to be a sole supplier of this sensor. Do you want to do it? And then I had to go out and do customer research, evaluate the market opportunity, build a business case, work with finance, understand COGS, source the supplies, build the prototypes. And eventually yeah. at the end of the project, I went to the company and, and said, there's not enough of a market opportunity to justify doing this development project. And when I was, I was 22 years old at that time, and then the people in the boardroom listened to me and it was crazy. And I basically yeah. went, there's not enough of a market opportunity to do this. And then the next company I went to, like they brought me in for some certain reason. And within three weeks, I was like, this isn't the real reason that you need me. Over here, you could make massive improvements to your gross margin by sourcing products in a different place. We need to fix our supply chain. And then I went and did supply chain projects for that company. And then boom, every time I would go to a company, they would basically have an assignment ready. And then when I would get there and evaluate the assignment, I would always find a bigger opportunity within the company that was different than what they thought. And I always went into it with like a like a consultant business CEO type of lens, even though I was only, you know, 23 to 25 years old. And then I started mm. to be hit, have a lot of business background and go through three or four companies in B2B and start to realize that and we're in the mid 2010s now, like you stuff's changing. The way that buyers are changing, these companies go to markets through either partnered like uh, hardware distribution channels in the US mm -hmm. or inefficient inside sales with like no digital demand or even care for marketing, not even focused on the website. I just saw the pattern over and over. And it was clear that there, there was like a big opportunity if with marketing is executed properly to drive dramatic growth and digital transformation within the company and scale how they generate revenue differently. And so in yeah. 2016, I, I effectively bet my career on digital demand. And over since then, we've worked with a bunch of different companies. I've evolved yep. in my thinking and frameworks a ton and think that we look at B2B marketing or B2B demand or whatever you want to call it in a incredibly different way than what people have been told are the best practices right now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, you know, Refine Labs certainly seems to be a business that's pushing back on a lot of the major trends, the things that people have been told over and over again, you must do this, you must do, you know, build a funnel, make a clickbaity piece of content that people can download that has nothing to do with whether they want to buy from you and all the trick people into your sales funnel, all this stuff that's been happening for for a long time now and everyone's been told is the right way to do things. You guys seem to be bucking the trend of of a lot of those things. What's the sort of trigger point that you are like, this is how I know for sure this stuff's not working. And this is how I know for sure that we need to do something different. 
I joined a Series A company in 2018 after having a much success building a demand engine inside of a Series D company that IPO'd. I joined a Series A company. The Series A's company cuts in. They had overhired sales reps. They're a 20 person company with 12 people in the sales department, <laughs> no people in marketing. They're doing cold outbound for a 4K ACV product. They just don't know what they're doing. Hmm. And we get in there and it's like CRO is like, we need leads. We need leads. I go out, I get 500 plus perfect fit leads using performance marketing on Facebook and LinkedIn. And we close zero deals from it for two to four K ACV. Yeah. And that was the point where it's like, I just did all this stuff for two years. That was way different. I was customer centric. It was content driven. I was thinking about creating demand and capturing demand separately. We were integrated with sales. We were like, we were being customer centric. And then I come over here and this company's like, we're behind our revenue targets. We overhired sales reps. We need lead gen. And then you run lead gen using the same channels and you get a, a mm -hmm. very unfortunate, very like unsatisfactory outcome in terms of ROI and sales productivity and actual results. And so that was like the first insight. It's like, huh, like this shit doesn't work when you do it this way. The reason, because these people don't actually want to buy. They downloaded your gated content. And mm -hmm. then since then, that was the first insight. And then you follow the breadcrumbs there. And since then, I've been a consultant and I've been in Salesforce data with more than 100 B2B companies. My company, Refine Labs, has worked with more than 250 B2B companies in this capacity. So we have seen a lot of patterns. And the pattern's mm -hmm. always the same. High volume, cheap MQLs don't convert to customers. Or if they do, they convert it somewhere between 0.1 and 0.3%, which is one, one in 333 to one in 1,000 people that your sales team engages with or talks to becomes a customer, which is really, really, really bad. And sales yeah, is an incredibly 100%. expensive resource. You got, you know, SDRs making 100K, you have mid-market AE making 160 to 200. And then you do that at scale for a larger company, you know, a medium-sized business that has 10 to 50 sales reps, and you multiply that level of inefficiency and you're like, holy shit, this is really bad. Mm. And yeah, so it's not just the lead, seen, right? It's not the it's lead. It's not just it's the all quality the, of the lead. It's the resources and the infrastructure in order to be able to manage and try and make something out of those leads becomes a massive hidden cost. Yeah, a massive cost. Yeah. Yeah. You can get away with it when you're a seed or a Series A stage company and you have two reps. But when you start getting into the big leagues, you just get 30 million, 50 million ARR the system fundamentally won't scale. The inefficiencies mm. are so bad, you can't get enough leads and process them at an acceptable cost of acquisition. So eventually, you're in a rare case where your product is so good that even if you run shitty marketing, you can still grow. But oftentimes, you need to transform and rebuild your entire like marketing strategy, which then da has downstream impacts to sales headcount planning and SDR strategy and stuff like that. And at some point, you have to rebuild it and say, if we want to make a step change in growth, we're not going to get it from this incremental, low-efficiency stuff. Yeah. The big trigger point for me was um, I kept working in companies where we were hitting all of our marketing targets and not hitting some of our sales targets. And I had salespeople saying, the leads suck. And then everyone saying the salespeople were just being lazy. They don't call the leads properly. I'm like, look, if salespeople are inherently lazy then maybe that's a good thing and we should use that because if they're not calling the leads and they're supposedly lazy, there's probably a good reason for it. If they would rather cold call someone than to call your lead, there's a problem with the lead. That was like a major trigger point for me. And my background is more sales than marketing. Yeah, there's alternative trigger points too. You go and run performance marketing as a marketer, you call 10 leads and you see what it feels mm. like and you see if you get them into a meeting and you know immediately that the shit's it's dog shit. And so like, mm. it's great. Like I did that in 2016 intuitively that before I ever sent leads to, we didn't have an inbound SDR team at that point. So if I marketing mm -hmm. generated a lead, it went to the AE. And I was very committed at the beginning of saying, I'm going to try a bunch of different stuff, but every lead's going to go through me until I know which ones are good. Cause I'm not sending our, I'm not wasting our reps time. I was like one of the three marketers. We had 45 reps. I'm like, I'm not sending them a bunch of garbage. So I started to call the leads. Okay, run an ebook download and then start to go up on and try and get meetings for people, then see if people come to the website and ask for a demo and then call them and see what that feels like. And then if they ask for pricing and you just run a bunch of different experiments and you start to see, okay, the people that say, hey, I want to talk to sales and I'm interested in buying your stuff and I am qualified, I'm an, an account that's qualified to buy, then those are perfect things to send to our sales team. Everything else, get it out of the way. They have better shit to do. And so yep. there's been a really interesting mindset shift 
that and having the experience of being a marketer that also has sold before mm -hmm. it becomes so important because then you know like yeah. you know how it works and like if i'm a rep and i'm getting a bunch of garbage leads i'm not going to follow up with them either and so yeah. people are pointing the fingers but salespeople are smart Salespeople will take the path of least resistance to achieve the goal and if the path to least if they don't think the path to least resistance is following up on marketing leads, then I'm not shaming them for not following up. It's because, and then when we started, when we figured this out and we started sending all the people that were saying, hey, I wanna buy now, directly to AEs, all of a sudden, after like 10 or 15 days doing it, every AE is like, where are more for my territory? Because people talk, mm -hmm. people talk. They're yeah. like, oh, I just got three demo requests sent to me. I got three meetings booked. That's more than I know. Like we're selling 100K ACV stuff. That's like way more than I normally get in a week. And I got them all from the demo request. And then deals start closing faster and you start building momentum. And if your sales team doesn't think that the best opportunity of a chance to win a deal doesn't come from an inbound account saying, hey, I'd like to buy now, then we're doing something wrong in marketing and how we think what a lead means. Yeah. And I think it just changes the perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I've heard you talk about that piece of marketing having, you know, direct customer contact being really important before. It's not something that happens in most businesses that I've seen anyway, marketers actually having direct customer conversations. I had a really good chat with one of our previous guests about this in terms of events, having marketers go out to events that they're trying to run. If you're going to run a, you know, a field marketing activity, actually turning up, talking to people, because there's so much stuff you just kind of can't track and understand whether it's good or not, especially with things like events, without being there and without talking to people. And then, you know, the data doesn't show that it was good, so we don't do it next year. And actually, we got three or four deals out of it. We just never really realized. How much do you think it is like an essential part of the marketer's toolkit these days to actually like have customer conversations, be involved in research, do sales calls, go to events, all of those things? This is one of the core reasons that I think industry experience is grossly overrated and sometimes has a negative impact. The places where I came from in companies, marketing means promotion and upstream product market research and pricing and positioning. That's what marketing mm. is. And if you go into SaaS, in a lot of cases, especially early stage companies, but as they get mature, they get smarter. But at early stage companies, it means lead gen. Mm. And so when I came into SaaS, I was blown away. I was like, what? Marketers don't talk to customers? Like, that's the first thing you do when you join any company as a B2B marketer. Like, what are we doing here? We're supposed to know the customer better than anybody else, regardless of whether we focus on events, SEO, or something else. We need to know customers. That's step one of being a marketer. And I was blown away because every company that I worked at before, it was like the number one thing that we did. So from my background of like in product management and working for companies where marketing includes upstream product management and having a lot of experience in product marketing and classically trained marketers, I was just like, this feels like step, you know, it's the first thing that you should do. And it's probably, it, I don't, it could be one of like the main reasons why B2B marketers struggle at a, at a broad level, because how are you gonna know what content to build if you don't understand your customer? How mm -hmm. are you gonna know how you should, like marketing teams usually don't decide pricing in SaaS, which is interesting. Like we made pricing decisions by doing primary market research with customers and getting like, you know, pricing tolerances and things like willingness to pay surveys. And that would drive the price. In SaaS, it's just driven by what you can get when you sell it. So I don't know how much can we get? There's a lot yeah. of differences, but some people call it like, I, I don't really like this analogy, but it fits in the bill here. Like we need to, we're not the chief marketing officer. We're the chief market officer. I think whether you call it marketing or market doesn't really matter. But what matters mm. is like you own the customer as, as the marketing team, you own the customer experience, the pricing, the positioning, the story. And when you see an incredibly strong diverse, like high business acumen CMO execute against that, you see all the best companies out there. And yep. so I think it's like, uh, and you know, a lot of CMOs don't stick around for very long, but the ones that do can really make an impact when they have those pieces in place and they have the flexibility to play with all of those in order to develop what they call the marketing mix. It's hard to make a marketing mix if you don't own all the levers in the mix. So yeah, it's just how yeah. different industries think about it different ways. But when I brought that into SaaS, it, like to many people, it felt revolutionary. To me, it felt very elementary. Yeah, there's this element that like there's a lot of stuff that 
actually used to be done or is the way it has been done for a long time in a lot of different industries. You know, and I want to touch on this a little bit more later. You talk quite a bit about self-reported attribution. I mean, that's a thing that companies have been doing in marketing for ever. <laughs> Where did you hear about us? How did you hear about us? You know, um, asking that question forever, particularly in B2C versus B2B. But asking that question has been around forever. And it's like there's so many of these things where we're kind of looping back to things that we knew were best practice and great things to do even 15, 20 years ago, but they're more important now because we kind of got led down a path of a friend of mine gave me an analogy once of um, you leave the bar and you're looking for your car keys, which is a bad analogy because you shouldn't be looking for your car keys. But you're looking for your car keys and it's dark and you're looking for them underneath the street lamp. And you go, someone comes over and goes, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my keys. Why are you looking for them there? Oh, because that's where the light is. Mm. But it's not where your keys are. (laughs) (laughs) And it seems like we're looping back on some of this stuff that we kind of got off track from because we wanted to become data-driven and be able to have full visibility on everything digital. The fundamentals of business are timeless. Mm. It's just how you execute against those that are different, whether it's a different channel or a different business model or whether it's digital or physical. The elements on top can change based on the time, but the actual underlying fundamentals of business remain timeless. And so not if you don't have a good understanding of your customer, when you think about your product strategy, pricing strategy, positioning, sales motions, things like that, you're not going to be very successful. Mm. So... Yeah, like I, the underlying fundamentals drive everything and they're unchanged, whether it's on Facebook or we have digital or things like that. And I think some people, as the technology grew, got away from the fundamentals and thought that the, the technology like either solved or filled gaps for or something like that, solved or did the fundamentals for them. And the reality is, as we continue to get more tech and more digital and more driven, The people who have more real insights and more real relationships with customers are the ones that continue to be more and more successful. Those can be digital and physical, so it's not restricted to one place. But I think that's an important sentiment that especially in B2B software and tech, we have gone way too far off the pendulum into tech and data and nowhere near enough on being customer centric. Like If you just go and ask your customer, example... There's almost no B2B company besides product-led growth companies and self-service motions that publish their pricing on their website, at least even a range. Mm. Go look at any enterprise SaaS company. And then if you went and you did, and that company went and took their 100 top accounts and surveyed the people inside of that company and said, would you like to know the price of our product before you talk to a sales rep? Almost 100% of the people would say, yes, I would like to know the price. And they still don't do it. And that's just one example of many where companies, especially in their go-to-market motions, are not respecting what the modern buyer wants anymore at their own detriment, at their own level of inefficiencies. And so it's never a good idea to do things that are in direct conflict with what your customer wants. I think that's a super important sentiment. I'm really keen to explore like the model to this. So you, you guys obviously work with companies to help them to solve this problem, right? What is the the macro, the top end model when you go into a new business that you're working with that you want to teach them, that you want them to understand and you want to go and execute on? So there's two separate situations and I've learned to split it out this way, mainly for the value of the listeners. So you have in one side, you have a company that's effectively building their engine from scratch. Maybe they have a VP of marketing, mm. they got two marketers, they got pretty bad data, like marketing ops has not been a priority, CRM isn't clean. They're not spending that much on marketing overall, their budget's probably like less than a million bucks. Those people got to figure out how to get the wheels turning for something to work, right? So you got like a build it situation. And then you got where I think my company drives significant ROIs on the companies that already have an existing engine and need to transform it. So they're spending, you know, somewhere between five, five, you know, on the low end, probably three million a year on marketing and on the high end, 20 plus million. So they're spending a lot on marketing. They have good data. They have a smart team. They have a great CMO. They have like a sales team that can repeatedly close deals, right? They have traction in the market, but yep. the strategy is wrong. They're getting a bunch of leads. It creates a lot of inefficiencies. Their sales and marketing misalignment. And then they built it up. So now they're sort of reliant on it because it's like a big machine. How are we going to unwind this Mm. and move to a path forward? 
the solution is to first fix marketing. And so we help them go through that process of unwinding, which is one, run an analysis, identify all of the spend that is either highly inefficient, not ROI positive, or not showing any results, immediately cut that and then look at plans to reallocate to either things that are working or to net new experiments to entirely adjust their set of attribution and KPIs. So how are we going to do attribution? How are we going to decide? Hint, it's not influenced revenue. Hint, it's not multi-touch attribution and like a U-shaped model. It's none of that stuff. And then how are we going to think about marketing KPIs shifting away from an MQL model where the core marketing KPI does not align with revenue at all and shift it to stage three or stage two pipeline, depending on the company and the win rate to pipeline that our sales team wins predictably at greater than 25%. And when you shift that goal, it forces ridiculous amounts of change at the tactical level about what we're doing, because a lot of marketing activities create MQLs that don't become stage two or stage three pipeline. And so all the Mm. stuff that's doing there on an MQL model, it looks like it's working. When you shift the goal to stage three pipeline, it's clearly not working. And then what happens? The people that are doing them think differently and think about new ideas and innovate and find better things to do that actually drive pipeline. And so, and then we get in the details and help companies with a roadmap of how you actually make that transition. Because if you're you're a $50 million company, you can't just shut everything off and start over. So we help them navigate that change without seeing any negative impact on pipeline, setting themselves up for to hit the next stepwise growth step. Yeah, and you guys tend to talk, you mentioned it earlier, but you obviously talk about this all the time, the importance of splitting your KPIs, your focus, everything between demand creation and demand capture. When it comes to demand creation, I mean, obviously you work a lot with some similar type businesses, but what's the approach to going into a business that, actually, let's talk about option one, somebody that's got nothing, because we at Trust the Process, we provide customers, we have a content as a service product, right? We help people create content for themselves. When you go into a business that has nothing, what's the approach to figuring out like, what should they talk about? (laughs) How are we going to build this audience? Who should do the talking? What platforms? All of those things. Like, What's the way you go about building that out? So you basically have two options when you're trying to create demand. I also think that companies should do other things, especially if they're trying to build from the start, then just start with starting a podcast or writing video. I think there's a lot of underlying things that generate faster results more predictably by focusing on people that are lower, you know, more in market. But then once you get to demand creation, you basically have two strategies. If the ACV deems it, you should have a paid targeted strategy focused on top, like best fit ABM accounts. Then you should have a dark social thought leadership strategy that's typically distributed on an organic, but can be amplified with paid. That involves a live event that becomes a podcast that becomes short form social media video content. And then when you think about like, what are we going to talk about? This is all the strategy part. This is going out and talking to customers, identifying your best customers, getting customer stories and listening to what people say. Like, I think that's like the easiest hack at any company, but definitely early stage. Find your best customers and ask them like 10 questions about what the value is provided. What would you do differently Mm. if you didn't have this product? What would you do instead? What were you doing before? What was the main goal that you accomplished? And then take letting your customer, you know, take 10 customers, let them tell you that. And then try and figure out how to send it back out with using your own customer's language, I think is a great way to get to an initial value prop. You have to overlay your product vision and your how you're, you know, thinking about your narrative or category. You have to overlay things to make it more precise, but the initial input, instead of just guessing, could actually be very well served as getting it directly from customers that are already successful. Yeah, that's definitely, you know, comes back to the conversation we were having before about talking to customers, making sure you understand what it is that they really want. I've often said, and actually a former mentor of mine once said to me, your goal is ultimately to be able to express your customer's world in a way that they've never been able to do for themselves. Like say it in a way that they go, oh yeah, that's exactly how I'm feeling. That's exactly what I'm thinking. And so from a content perspective, it seems like the goal is here ultimately find out what they're thinking, find out what they're feeling, and then find a way to to express that back to them in a way that nails exactly how you want to solve the problem too. Yeah. At a messaging and positioning level, I think that's a good solve. When it comes to actually developing the content, if you just put your, if you take off your like business or sales hat and you put on the hat that says, I'm going to be the number one consultant or content producer, you could look at as being a consultant for this type of person. I understand them. I've done their job before. 
I have credibility with them. I can really help them. I'm committed to helping them. If you have those pieces in place, you're going to do amazing. If you're putting on the Mm. hat with your sales hat and you say, okay, I'm going to start this podcast so that I can invite my target customers on it so that I can pitch them afterwards, you're not going to have as much success. And so you have to like it really like when it comes to a content strategy, if you don't have the right mindset, the rest of it breaks down. So that's another way to look at it when you're actually committed to helping people and you have the skills and credibility to actually do it. That's how you decide who's going to be the host of your podcast. And it's hard. I recognize that most people can't do it. I recognize that when I started doing it four years ago, I sucked at it. And with doing it for four years, three to seven times a week, I've gotten pretty damn good at it. And I recognize that most people in business are not going to put in that level of effort to be good at it. So it's just like the people that make it to the pros in the MLB or the NHL. It's a small subset of the people that actually play basketball or hockey. Mm, And so do you want to go pro? Or do you want your career to be done after high school? Yeah. It's a good way to look at it when it comes to podcasting because you have to do 1% actions to get 1% outcomes. Yeah. A lot of the people that I talk to about the just the concept of podcasting, they're not necessarily themselves the right person to do it. I usually say to them, like, whoever has the greatest insight, whoever has the most understanding of the problem most understanding of the customer, the most understanding of how to solve it should probably be the person that talks about it. But sometimes they're just not the right person to talk about it. And uh, I've had a few people say, well, what if one of my team does it? And then later they leave. <laughs> Do you get this problem very often? Is this something you've had to resolve? Every time I recommend this strategy to a company, I am very clear with them. If you're going to do this, you should make sure that the person doing it has a clear financial long-term incentive to stay with the company. And if they Mm, don't, and it starts to work, you better be prepared to pay a large sum of money for them to keep doing it because they'll eventually recognize how powerful it is. So like, yeah, it is what it is. You hire your CTO, your CTO has a meaningful amount of equity. So they stay until the exit or at least until they're vested. So if you think this is so important to your strategy, then you should have a similar approach with this person. An evangelist, whether internal or external in your company, has the opportunity to drive more impact than your entire marketing spend because they have trust and trust is hard to buy. Actually, you can't buy it. It takes time and you have to build it and you can lose it if you do the wrong things. Yeah. So I think companies, they look at other executives like a head of sales or a CTO and they're like, yeah, I would definitely give that person 1% equity. But their podcast host that just has 100,000 followers on or subscribers on YouTube and has blown it up on LinkedIn, they don't see it the same way yet. They will, but they don't yet. Yeah. I see a lot more sort of personalities a little bit further down the chain as well. Like a good example of this is Tom Boston. I don't know if you know Tom Boston. SDR, still uh, with... Um, Sales Loft. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good example of like, you know, and at the coalface SDR at the time of kind of building that following and then... You know, I just, I always look at those situations and I wonder what a company would do for someone like that, that is doing a job that wouldn't typically get the same kind of Mm buy-in and whether they recognize it and how they structure that. It'd be super interesting to know. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the people that are able to develop leverage via personal brand, they typically change jobs pretty frequently. Mm, Yep. And the reason they change jobs is because they have more opportunity than the average person because they built up their personal brand and maybe they used your company's brand as leverage to get popular, famous, whatever you want to look at it as. But eventually they got somewhere and they had options. And so Mm, you have to recognize that as you go into this endeavor, if you have your senior director of product marketing who you love and you'd love for you to, to be at your company for the next five years, and they start blowing it up on the podcast and LinkedIn, you have to know that they're getting DMs to their inbox with far better offers than what you pay them right now. Yeah. And at some point, it's going to make sense for them to take a different opportunity if you're not able to give them that. And so as a business leader, you need to know that going in because if that cord gets ripped out and it's actually working, then it could be pretty detrimental to the company. It's hard to just replace a host. Yeah. The audience gets attached to the host, not like, so yes, to round out the point, like, If you're taking this seriously, it really should be someone that has a significant financial stake or meaningful long-term incentive in the success of the company. Yeah. 
just a, a side thought is I wonder if anyone's taken the uh, recruitment approach or the build approach of this of just trying to poach somebody else's uh, host <laughs> to automatically build their, sure their podcast have. audience. I guarantee it's happened. Yeah, yeah for again. sure it's happened. Can you talk to me just a bit about demand capture? Because I know there's, you know, there's a lot of things that people are doing that, you know, they're reliant on, particularly in the world of advertising or, or in search. How much juice is left in the lemon of uh, demand that you didn't create really for most businesses now? Like how much can they really get out of things like really focusing on an SEO s- strategy around keywords to nail search? How much is left in those things that is the demand that was out there that you didn't create? A lot, because most companies don't effectively create demand. Mm. So the key thing to like, if you just focus on demand capture, you're not bad. Nothing's wrong. But if you want to maximize the success and the overall economics of your business, you must recognize that in order for someone to buy something, demand has to be created and then demand has to be captured and converted. You need both parts of the process. And when you acknowledge that right now, when the demand is being created, something else is doing it other than you, then you realize that you can take control of it and take actions to drive more people to effectively increase the market size by creating demand for people. And so instead of getting a word of mouth referral every here and there, and having some people that are in market to buy, find you on your website, and then someone reading a Gartner report every once in a while and buying something, that you take control of that and you shape the story and you own the distribution to your target customers, I think it's just super empowering and frankly, very obvious if you want to win big in business and in marketing. Because every single commodity vendor is playing at the bottom of the funnel waiting for the people that already bought. So do you want to be down there fighting with low cost, cheap competitors and when the buyer doesn't have a favorability to you, which is what most companies do? Mm-hmm. Or do you want to create a new and different story and move buyers through that? So when they actually go to demand capture, they're not searching CRM, they're searching for your company. They're searching for your specific category of CRM because you created the demand. They didn't just hear about how they needed a CRM when they got 10 people. And so they are both massively critical and to recognize that you need to do both of them, but companies measure and spend focused primarily on demand capture, which prevents them from doing demand creation due to the attribution handcuffs that they have built inside of their company. And then they don't actually create demand, so they're fighting over this this stuff. So all the budget, including sales and things like that, are focused there. Just to clarify for people, because there's a just to clarify the definition, demand capture. When people, when someone is in market to buy your company or your category, how do you capture that intent and demand and convert it into a sales meeting? When we're talking enterprise sales here, it could be a self-service conversion if you're in e-commerce or something like that. But in in B2B enterprise sales, demand capture and demand conversion are two separate processes. In e-com, they end up being close to the same. Mm. So how do you capture an in-market buyer and convert them? So there's a couple of key words in there. If the buyer's not in market, then it's not demand capture. So it's lead mm-hmm. gen. And so like running lead gen on paid social cold to get people to download your ebook is not demand capture. They don't have intent to buy and they're not in market. You're just paying, you know, 150 bucks for someone's email address, which is terribly expensive and inefficient. Yeah. So yeah, that's a, a little bit of a breakdown of, and then how do you get them into a conversation with a salesperson? Yeah. So email, for example, I've had a lot of people over the years tell me that building an audience is amazing. You build it somewhere like Facebook. And I've certainly seen this from a lot of businesses. I used to work for a business coaching business. And so hundreds of businesses we would have conversations with every day about what's happening for them. I see this happen all the time where they, you know, they build some sort of funnel through Facebook, for example, and then Facebook would change the algorithm. Facebook would essentially want to be paid more money for what they're already giving you, which is obviously what's going to happen with them and with Google and whoever else, LinkedIn, whoever else over time. And so I've had a lot of people say to me that the goal with audience building is to actually capture that audience into an own platform. And most of the time people fall back to email. What part do you see email playing in this whole process kind of now, but also going forward? Email is clearly important, whether it's bulk marketing email, automated trigger email, or one-to-one actually written by a human, like email is important. It's a primary way that we run communication. This like, oh, don't build on LinkedIn, build your email list instead is fucking stupid. 
you need to be doing both things. Mm. You don't build an email list if people don't have a way to figure out and know about you. So you need to do both. Another thing is that when you build on a social channel, you get significant reach and distribution that you don't get mm. an email. Nobody knew it's forward. Like very few people are forwarding your email to a hundred or 300 other people like an algorithm on social media yeah. does. So they're just different. And then you take the brand equity with you and you follow where customers are going. And so if LinkedIn ended tomorrow, I would be able to still have the events I've built on TikTok. I would watch where the attention goes and then I would just keep building there and everyone still knows me. Mm. Yep. And so like people get tied up and oh, like Facebook's algorithm screwed me over. It's like you just milked Facebook for six years before it happened for free and you're mad at them yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. So like it's hard to argue with that. And the reality is, and people will listen to this and know, especially people that listen to my podcast, that if I built an SEO blog and an email list instead of built on LinkedIn and a podcast, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast right now. You wouldn't know me and my company would be mm. way smaller. It's not even close. And so when you talk about these either or things, it's a matter of priority. You should do everything in marketing, theoretically. You should do everything, mm. but we can't. We have a certain amount of money. We have a finite amount of time and customers have a finite amount of time that they use to consume things. So how do we match that up? Focus on the right stuff that matters today, not the stuff that we did six years ago with content syndication. How do we move that budget and move with our customers so we're marketing in the same places that they are? And I, I don't know, like I've been doing this type of, you know, digital marketing for lack of a better term, like since 2012 to sell things. And perhaps it's just like that experience level I've been able to pattern match and help other people see the patterns too. I'll give you an example. In, in 2019, it was totally obvious that you should be all in on a LinkedIn paid and organic strategy. Blindly obvious. And almost nobody did it. Mm -hmm. And those opportunities come all every couple of years. There's always a like one opportunity where the timing is right, where there's a ton of your customers using a platform and nobody's posting there. So if you posted, all of your target customers would see it and those things match up. And if you strike at that time and you move quickly and you do it effectively, then you can really capitalize. But B2B companies wait for Gartner to put out a report that says that they should do influencer marketing before they do it, or they should post on LinkedIn before they do it. And it's unfortunate because they end up being about five years behind the best part of the opportunity. Yeah, that whole market curve thing is interesting for any of these strategies. You know, there'll be the early adopters that get the early wins and the high margins. Eventually, everyone will realize that there is high margins and big wins to be had and start joining. And then at some point, the market will be really only available for super big players with massive budgets that can afford to take very small margins and they'll consolidate and take everybody else's channels. How far along that curve do you think we are in terms of things like podcasting? Because that obviously it won't last forever that it, it is a great place to go and build an audience. How far along that trajectory do you think we are? I don't know the exact figures, but I'll just caveat. I don't know the exact figures, but I think the figures are that there are 500 million blogs out there and there are 2 million podcasts. So mm. if you want to use that as a barometer, we're very early. And even out of the 2 million podcasts, more than 25% of them don't have more than one episode published. So we're really talking mm. like a million, probably less than a million active podcasts compared to 500 million blogs. And people are still over there jamming away with their SEO and their AI thinking, oh, like if this was a real concern about competition, then you'd be doing less and investing less on SEO. But that's not idealistic to think that people think like that. But in practice, I haven't found that people do that because if that was the case, then we're like, we're still in the early adopter phase of podcast. Mm. I know there's data that shows that listenership has gone down from 2022 to 2023 on podcasts. And to me, it's clear why. It's because the economy's down. People have work to do. Mm. People have shit to do, not just yep. listen to podcasts all day. So like podcast listenership is down for the first time in a long time. I'm not talking about my podcast. I'm talking about podcasts globally or nationally in the US. And so there are there are some changes that are happening in podcasts, but we're still in the early phase. You could say the same thing on LinkedIn. Like there's almost no active users on LinkedIn that are posting that consistently. We're talking yep. like small millions, a million, maybe two million. I don't know the exact figure LinkedIn does, but it's not a lot. And at some mm. point, especially, it's so crazy, which is that this is the unlock that's different than SEO in between a, and a podcast and LinkedIn and other places. 
is that in those places, the content really matters. In SEO, mm. I say, I need the answer to this. And then you give me the thing. And it could have been written by a bot, a blog, someone in the Philippines. It doesn't matter. It's like it served the purpose to my intent. When you're in a podcast and LinkedIn and other places in dark social, there is no intent. So you have to create stuff that's better than all the other stuff that people could listen to. You're not competing with just the B2B podcasts in your space. You're competing with Joe Rogan's podcast. You're competing with yeah. whatever the, you know, Caller Daddy, all the pop, like the main popular top 10 podcasts. Yeah. That's what you're competing with when you talk about a 35-year-old B2B professional decision maker. They could be listening to one of those instead of your boring B2B niche podcast. And people don't yeah. appreciate that. So they create shit content and they get shit results and they wonder why. It's not like SEO to make this type of content. Yeah, it seems yeah. like that would come back to your point around like KPIs and intent. If your goal is to just create leads and that's your KPI, then it doesn't matter if the content sucks and they never buy because that's not what you're being measured on. If your goal is, is to create a, real pipeline and sales, then it has to be great because they're there to actually learn from you and then they come to you because they want to work with you rather than with someone else. Yeah, it's such a precise way to put this is that people don't create content to bring value to their target customer most of the time in B2B. They create mm. content that has a cheeky headline that can get someone to download something so they can have their SDR badger them. They track every metric in the book. B2B companies will track every metric in the book. One thing they don't track, did someone actually read the PDF? Mm. We know they download, yep. we know they filled out the form, but they'll never look at they never look at analytics of someone. Did someone to get to page three? Did they even open it? They don't care. And when I started looking at it that way, you can find that most people that download a PDF don't actually even read it. I had somebody say that to me once, like, as a fact, as if it wasn't a problem, right? <laughs> people don't People don't even, it doesn't matter because people don't even read the actual content. You're just trying to get their email address. And I was like, that doesn't feel, yeah. that doesn't feel right to me. The whole point of making content is so that it's consumed, so that the person who's meant to consume it understands something more in the future that is ideally beneficial to your business or brand. Yeah. That's the point of making. So it actually has to be consumed to have any type of impact. Yeah. Yeah. And what those aha moments, right? Like that moment where somebody just, their world makes a bit more sense to them because of a model you showed them, or they figure out how to connect some dots that weren't quite making sense to them before. And they just go, ah, oh, yeah. You know, those moments mm -hmm. to me are the, are the gold when you can, you can get somebody to just take that step forward and feel like they get it more because they consumed the content, mm -hmm. not because they gave you their email address. I've got some questions I want to ask because I know we're going to run out of time pretty soon. At Trust the Process, we help people in two ways, right? We help them with people, predominantly offshore people, and we help them with tools, predominantly with CRM, and that is either HubSpot or ActiveCampaign. I want to talk about tools for a second because I know a lot of people listening will want to know what are the primary tools that you need in the toolbox in order to, in order to be able to execute a great demand creation, demand capture strategy and measurement, obviously, of that strategy. What are the essential tools that you're seeing uh, working for now, like the basics, but also like what's the interesting stuff that you're seeing some results from too? You need a CRM. I think most companies that listen to my podcast should be using either HubSpot or Salesforce as a CRM. Then you need market automation, HubSpot or Marketo. We don't even fuck around with other CRMs anymore. So like it's just HubSpot or mm. Salesforce or it's probably not, you're probably not a good fit for us. And then like yep. I will take a Pardot customer every now and again, but it's really like an inferior product relative to the other products in the category. And it's a signal that the company doesn't take their data seriously. There are good Pardot instances, but for the most part, we have the most issues with companies that use Pardot, whatever reason why, I don't know, but yeah. it's definitely a trend. I'm a former Pardot user and I can confirm I've had yeah. significant problems with my data. Totally. Yeah. You should use HubSpot. Yeah. So those two end up becoming the main thing. If you're running like some level of like enterprise or even mid-market, you know, talking 30, 50K deals or above, then I think having an intent account level intent data source and a clear ICP is a good thing. You can get that from a million different providers. You can go out and buy the ABM tech, like the full platform stuff. You could buy intent data from certain vendors. There's a lot of ways to do it, but you should, you know, test some stuff out and, and figure that out as a way to, to trigger outbound rather than doing cold database or making marketing generate MQLs. Mm -hmm. 
I have a calendar booking solution so that someone that comes to your website and is ready to buy has a way to book a meeting with a person that can help them on the first call, not some qualification bullshit or some like some like email follow up cadence with an SDR. Like get let the person book a meeting with the person given if the account's qualified and the person's qualified. You know, HubSpot has one, Chili Pipe. There's a lot of different options for that. And then there's like a lot of free stuff. Like you should be using LinkedIn to post organic content every day free. LinkedIn campaign manager should be considered a tool because it's one of the best ways to get in front of your customers. And even though people think it's expensive, it's way less expensive than other shit they spend on in their go-to-market. Mm. It's way less expensive than the, the big trade show boost they build. It's way less expensive than some of the partnerships that they do. It's way less expensive than their SDR and sales team doing a one-to-one -one demo with a customer. So like it feels expensive because their content syndication leads 50 bucks and the LinkedIn one is 150 or the CPMs are higher. But when you think about the value of that, those impressions in feed, not LinkedIn audience network, those are high quality delivery to exact target customers that I think is still underpriced, even though people think it's expensive. You know, I'm not gonna like, I, I could say Google Analytics, but I haven't logged into Google Analytics in probably six months. So like, I think like, and, and the, the take home as I try and like reach into my brain and come up with a couple more tools to shout out here is the idea that like, you don't need a lot of stuff. No. Especially when you're going, having a bunch of debt in tools is like not a good thing to do. Build something that works, that works for the customer, demonstrate that it works, and then use tools to operationalize and scale programs that already work rather than buying a tool and then hoping the tool will figure stuff out. And then you implement the tool, you don't get the result because you have the wrong mindset or you didn't prove it out. And you don't get the ROI you expected. And so it's like, yeah, I always think, yep strategy and proof of concept come before tool. Yeah. We say process too. The tool should ultimately be an expression of your process. Love that. You have to systemize before you automate and add to technology. But like to your point around simplicity, we say to most people, if you're a HubSpot user, you can do almost everything that you need to do just in HubSpot. Almost everything. A lot of their point Keep solutions suck, by the way, but that's for another day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They've got some, yeah, I mean, even their meeting booking solution has definitely some flaws in it. The fact that it is in one platform helps you avoid the whole Frankenstein's monster. The data doesn't flow to the right places. It's yep. not easy to maintain. You've got to have an external consultant in order to make things work and et cetera. But uh, definitely some of the pieces have some missing elements. Yeah. So I'm just going to put this one out. It's not a, I know it's a, you said conversation for another day, but I'm going to put this one out there in case any HubSpot people are listening. The tagging ability in the social posting management element of HubSpot absolutely sucks. You can never find the right person to tag for your scheduling and it's a massive pain in the butt. So any mm. HubSpot people listening, please fix that. Okay. So tools, the other thing we always, we help with is people. I think marketing is probably one of the most challenging areas from a people perspective because there are so many different defined skills that you really kind of need to execute a great marketing strategy. For some people, they need to have them internal. For some people, they'll use an agency or something in order to access a lot of those different skills. What do you think are the primary skills you need in a great marketing team to be able to go and execute a strategy like this? Great marketing leader. Demand, product marketing, field. Yep. Yeah, I would even consider field as a subset of demand. So demand and product marketing. Yeah. And then every single sub function is some part of demand capture or demand creation under demand, or it's some part of strategy under product marketing. And like we over specialized in B2B SaaS and tech. Like you give me any marketing task. And even if I haven't done it before, I'll be able to figure it out because the underlying principles are timeless. Yeah, And it's like, we overcomplicate stuff and we get so deep in like, oh, how are we going to run this like Google ad? And people are over-specialized and can't lift up and see the actual, like see it from a 30,000 foot view and realize that a lot of the things they're debating right now don't matter at all. Yeah, And so I think we need people that think much more broadly and, outs and at a more holistic level across all marketing disciplines. And when you can mix them together, that's when you get the best result. I've been a field marketer, product marketer demand marketer, SEO marketer, e-commerce, like mm. I've done a lot of this stuff and then because marketing ops and rev ops even. And because I've done all of them before, I'm able to mix them together in really interesting ways. Yeah. And so I think that you must still use like 
you know, graphic designers, SEO specialists, website designers, like all of those things are still individual skills, are they not? Or is it better to have people that have... Yeah. Totally. You, I'm not saying that you don't need specialists, but I'm saying that if you want to be a top 1% marketer and a marketing leader, being able to see how these pieces come together is really important. Also having the experience of working in the detail. So when your team has a question or, or says something that you can tell whether they're full of shit or not. Yeah. So I think being in the details is really important. It's really interesting to think about like the current stage of CMOs, right? They were a VP or above when digital started. So they never worked in a lot of them. So they never worked in the details of how to build an email campaign or run a social ad or make video content or things like that. And then over the last 10 years, rapidly accelerated. So now you're a CMO, you're at the mid stage of your career and you have no tactical experience of all the things that matter right now. And so that becomes a a really interesting proposition that sometimes you have to get back, like you're gonna have to, become a consultant and give advice or really get back into the details and understand it so that you can drive the future strategy. Yeah, I see a lot of businesses um, want to, they go and engage agencies because they don't have that in-depth understanding of the details. And so they want to talk to somebody at a strategic level who then can manage people at a tactical, at a technical level in order to get the thing done. I think like SEO is a good example of this. There's some great SEO agencies out there But which parts of these do you think are things that you fundamentally should have in? I mean, everyone's going to have to make choices. You can't hire somebody to do everything, depending on what stage of business you're at and what size of business you are. But what are the things that you typically would prioritize as far as internal skills that you need as a for a B2B marketing team versus things that you might outsource, you might send offshore, you might... You'll be able to sort of find, I think, two distinct views at this. So one view is does this require what I will call customer intimacy? Do we need to understand the customer in order to make good decisions? I think all of those types of roles and people should be internal roles. Mm. It's not mutually exclusive, but there's another category here, which is what are things that get better through scale and repetition that we'll never get inside of our company? We've run LinkedIn ads for 250 companies. We've built a CRM dashboards and reporting and attribution for more than 100 B2B companies. We're better at it than your marketing ops person. I know it for sure because mm. we have repetition and experience and scale. And so there are certain places that you should be using external resources where the scale and repetition is unmatched inside of your company. And yep. so we should be looking at it like, and I don't think that it's, like I mentioned, I don't think that it's mutually exclusive. I see a future where it's much more of a hybrid environment, like that we're using external experts for certain things and we have internal people that have customer intimacy and we match them together and we take great scalable processes created by external experts that work with a lot of companies combined with a high level of customer knowledge and intimacy coming from an in-house team and putting those together and making a huge impact together. If I was a CMO, that's how I would be designing my organization. Yeah. So that's, I think that's a good way to look at it. I'm... Very glad to hear you say that because we've made some recent decisions that that go down that track. You know, like, so we do this content as a service product and uh, we've been saying to customers, this is not something you can just set and forget. You can't turn up to a Zoom call once a month and record with us and then we'll just shoot it all out the other end. There has to be quite a bit of hand-holding throughout the process. So they come along, we do all the strategy and what they're going to talk about first. They come along, they record. But the repeatable process stuff is how do we then take that 90-minute recording and turn it into 28 pieces of content so you can post once a day, you know, or Mm -hmm. 56 pieces of content you can post twice a day. That part of the process is very repeatable and you can use video editors and graphic designers and all of those things to take it to the other end. Copywriters even because the content's there, you're not, they're not making the content, they're just taking what you've already said and then turning it into blogs and emails and social posts, et cetera, comes out the other end and you approve it, read it, approve it, and then gets scheduled for distribution. That sort of hybrid model, I think, has some legs in part because some of that stuff you can offshore too. You know, like we obviously work in the Philippines. Some things you shouldn't, right? Copywriting is a thing I've always really struggled to do offshore. Get lots of people coming to me asking for copywriters offshore. It's never worked out. Yeah. But if you can do video editing and graphic design and those things, you get major cost efficiencies. 
Have you seen many of these things work really well where they kind of bring into the hybrid model? And obviously, I'm asking this question for purely uh, selfish reasons here, where you can use those offshore teams to create some cost efficiencies so you get access to more skills and a bigger team because of those cost efficiencies? Yeah, there are trade-offs with this. And like, I don't think the... I just don't think it really matters whether you hire an in-house video editor for six grand a month or you pay someone offshore two grand a month. I just in the net of business, I just don't think it really matters. So it's whatever works best for your business. Yes, it could be mm. more cost efficient to use offshore. Yes, typically the work done offshore is just as high quality as the work done onshore. So like, yeah, sometimes it can make sense. But I think when you look at the two frames that I mentioned, does it require customer intimacy? And does having some level of scale optimize the overall deliverable? I think like the nuts and bolts video editing doesn't fall into either of those categories. Therefore, it could be put in either place. Mm. Now, when you think about the distribution of the video, then I think having a process and scale to understand how people are reacting across a lot of businesses, then then the distribution side, I think it does create efficiency to have an external firm helping you with that because they've distributed video content with 100 companies. And therefore, I've mm. seen a lot more examples than what your company is. And they're going to tell you the truth about why it's not working, which could be your host or your, you know, the person running your podcast is not good at it. So, yeah, by looking at each individual thing about what are we trying to accomplish, is there benefit in having scale of operating it with a lot of companies in this way? You could look at this as a consultant the same way. The consultant like Christopher Lockhead or Andy Raskin does category designer strategic narrative. They've done that with 50 you know, 50 plus companies, maybe way more than that, hundreds even, I don't know the exact number. Mm. They're going to be a lot better at actually creating an outcome because of the experience than your VP of marketing that hasn't done it before. So I think they're like, and it's not that one is good or one is bad. It's about using, but like the VP of marketing in that instance should know the customer better than anybody else. Right. And so I think that's how we blend internal resources that are obsessed with customers and understand them so well with external people that really, really, really understand what's happening at scale across a lot of companies like them. Love to hear it. Yeah, I think we're on a similar page on that one. Okay. So to wrap things up, I got two questions that I want to ask you. One of them I asked right. to everybody. Yeah. Let's roll them. Last main question cool. is um, I haven't met many people in my life who have been successful in something, who really understand something, who don't have their own approach to learning. Are there books, podcasts, mentors? Where do you get your information from? Is it from external sources or is it stuff you figure out yourself? What's your approach to learning? I've had a couple of strong mentors that I just happened to work with during the time and early in my career. And so I credit people like uh, Andy Midland and Lise Halpern for all their help in setting the fundamentals. And then I built on top of the fundamentals that they taught me and created something new. But I learned through doing. Like, and that's how everyone is going to learn best. You don't like, it's only a small percentage of the learning hearing someone else talk about a majority of the learning is you actually doing it yourself. And because I don't have a, I'm in a position, unlike an in-house B2B marketer often where I am flexible. And if I make a mistake, I'm not going to get fired. And so I can experiment. I can do things. I can try things. Yeah. I can be more direct with the CMO or the CEO and what they actually need. I'm in a different seat. And through that way, I'm able to push the boundaries on what we're actually doing and try different things. And through that, have created a lot of learnings, have seen a lot of different situations, have screwed up a bunch of times, have learned a ton. So yeah, I like my formula for learning as when it comes to business is understanding customers and not being afraid to fail. Yeah. You can read a hundred books and if you never try to apply any of it, you'll never know whether any of it works. Mm -hmm. That's that application piece for sure. And yep. the last thing for me is um, where can people find you? Where can they find you and what might they reach out about? Yeah, if you want to uh, follow along, I host a podcast called the B2B Revenue Vitals Podcast available on Apple, Spotify, and all the other platforms. And then you can follow me on LinkedIn. I'm most active on LinkedIn, Chris Walker 171 or you can use Chris Walker 171 on other platforms like TikTok and Instagram. And feel free to get in touch if you want to like listen to the podcast let me know what you think shoot me a dm on linkedin would love to get in touch with you hear what you're learning and what you're working on so thanks for having me on the show hope this was valuable and uh we'll catch up again soon great thanks for coming appreciate you man thanks 